Well, uh, as we were worshiping together, I was reminded of Psalm 98. And in Psalm 98, the psalmist says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And then um, the KGV version, which I don't necessarily reference very often, but I love the translation it has. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Make a loud noise. Y'all were loud this morning. And uh, I'm pretty sure God is very pleased by that, since it's in his scripture that we would make a loud noise when we show up on Sunday. Uh, And uh, so it is great to be with all of you. Uh, Some of you I have uh, not met yet. I would love to do that before you leave today. So please, uh, I'll be in the lobby as you exit. Just make sure you just come and say hi, or I'll try to seek you out as well. But it is good to be together with all of you this morning. If you don't know, I am Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. And um, when I was young, I distinctly remember this routine that I had each night before I went to bed. My parents would come in to put me to bed, and then my dad or my mom would kneel by the bedside, and we would say a short prayer together. And when I was a kid, you know, it it varied what I was praying for. Uh, Maybe it was like, God, help me score a goal tomorrow or whatever it might be. But but there was this moment that I knew that was coming each night when I went to bed. And as I grew older, certainly my dad didn't, my dad doesn't still come to my bedside and pray with me. <laughs> that would be very odd. Uh, but uh, but I, I have continued to practice that routine in my life. And it is very rare for me to go to bed or go to sleep or close my eyes without praying before I go to bed. Uh, Of course, this is just one example of how prayer can occur in a person's life. I know in my life, prayer seems to occur all the time. It's something that's always evident. I I mean, I pray for the evidence of God's work in my life. I pray for uh, when I have something new that's coming or something challenging that's occurring. I pray for my kids. I pray for my wife. I pray for our church. I pray when I need to have a difficult conversation or I know that a difficult situation is maybe going to occur. I even pray... Uh, to uh, on Wednesday nights when I still play hockey on Wednesday nights with my men's league team. And I often will say a short prayer before I step on the ice where I say, God, please don't let this be the night that I get injured, right? Um, and so far, things have been really, really good in that. But prayer is like that, right? Prayer is this, this thing that can cur- occur at any moment in, in any day. And um, there's no end, it seems, to what we can pray for, or how we can actually go about praying. The Bible seems to even encourage us that prayer is this no-holds-barred conversation with God. And so I want you to just take the book of of Acts, for example. We're in this series in the book of Acts, which we've been in for a long time. And this is a story of this ragtag group of Christians who are following this person, Jesus, powered by the Holy Spirit in the Roman Empire in the first century. And they were all in on this idea of being on mission with God to see his kingdom expanded into the known world around them. And there's this quiet confidence you see in those first followers in the book of Acts as they go about trusting the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and in their community. And it caused them to spread the Christian message like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. And at the very core of all of it was something that has the power to cause the same sort of spread, I believe, 
of God's kingdom work in our world as well. At the core of all of it was prayer. But listen, it wasn't just any kind of prayer. It was a kind of prayer that were pow- it was powered by the words like those in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Maybe you know it. The author says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. It was the kind of prayer that even Jesus refers to in Mark chapter 11, verse 24, where he says, I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. At the core of those first followers in the book of Acts was a kind of prayer that caused the unimaginable to become reality time and time again. And we're going to see that come true again in our passage for today. So if you haven't done so yet, uh, you can open up the YouVersion Bible app. If you're not sure what that is, just go into your phone and download it in your app store. It is a free resource. We, uh, we post our um, sermon, everything we're going to cover this week in there. You can go to live events and find us, and then you can take notes in there. There's also group discussion questions if you have a group meeting this week and you want to talk about the message. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 6. Now, last week, we dipped our toe into Acts chapter 12, and we met a guy named Herod Agrippa. He was the king in Judea from approximately 41 to 44 AD. And Agrippa was a terrible king and leader. We saw that last week. His main objective was simply to earn the approval and the praise of whomever whomever would give it to him. So if he was with the Romans, he would do whatever it took to gain the approval and the the, the, the sort of praises of the Romans. And if he was with his Jewish compatriots, he would say, hey, listen, I'll do whatever I can to make sure that your approval is of high acceptance to me, that your praises would be upon me. And in the case of Acts chapter 12, he did whatever he could to please the Jews. Now, because of the spread of Christianity in the first century, in these early decades of the church, the Jewish people in Jerusalem and in Judea, in particular, they're beginning to get nervous and upset about what's going to happen because of this new movement called Christianity. So in an effort to cease the spread of Christianity, they call upon their puppet king, Herod Agrippa, to show some force. And happy to appease their desires, Agrippa has James, the brother of John and a leader in the church, killed. And he also arrests and imprisons Peter, who at the time was the main leader, the leader among leaders within the church itself. Of course, undeterred by Agrippa's show of force, he's thinking, the Jews are thinking, listen, we can imprison this guy, it'll shut the whole thing down. But the people of God, the the followers of Jesus are undeterred by this. And the church goes right back to the core of who they are, which is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. It reads, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Despite their leader being in prison, awaiting trial, the church commits themselves to pray for God's intervention in the situation. Notice, they don't go to the prison and pick it. They don't make a stink in public about what's going on. They don't fight for their rights. What do they do? They turn to God in prayer. Look what Luke records next, Acts chapter 12, verse 6 through 8. 
The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened by two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to wake him and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. And the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. I love the comedic interaction between Peter and the angel here. First of all, Peter is obviously a very deep sleeper. Can we admit that? I mean, he is chained to two guards. He's surrounded by 14 others. He's probably laying on a hard floor of the prison cell. And meanwhile, this incredibly bright light fills this darkened dungeon of a prison. And yet Peter just keeps sawing logs, right? And so soundly, this is so funny, so soundly is Peter asleep in the prison cell that the angel has to smack him awake, right? Now, look, I don't want to dig too deeply into this, but there has to, there's like this, you see this in the, the Christians in the first century. There's this, this quiet confidence, this quiet trust. There has to be, if Peter is going to sleep that soundly, awaiting his potential death the next day. You know, it reminds me a little bit of that story of Jesus in the boat, napping while the storm rages all around and the disciples are losing their minds. Jesus has this just quiet confidence in who God is, his sovereignty, what's happening. Can, can you see how the Holy Spirit has done that same work in Peter here? It makes me wonder what kind of confidence or trust we have when we face difficult situations. That's a sermon for another day, but it reminds me of just... If we were in this situation, would we be on the solid floor sawing logs and need an angel to smack us awake? Or would we be biting our fingernails, pacing, wondering if God will come through? You know, there's like, there's not an ounce of worry in Peter as he gets, you know, his eight hours of sleep that night. And yet the, the angel comes and he smacks Peter awake and then he orders him to get dressed, which take it from Peter. If you're in a prison cell and an angel comes and he smacks you awake and he tells you to get dressed, just do it, okay? Just get dressed and do whatever happens next. He says, get up and put on your pants. Verse nine. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. Have you ever had a dream so vivid that when you wake up, you believe it's true? I feel like this is kind of what's happening with Peter. Like, it's like he's still walking in this dream. My wife has this. She will dream so vividly that when she wakes up, it's as if it's still happening. She can't quite determine reality from imagination. Uh, on multiple occasions, she's woken up furious with me. <laughs> Absolutely furious with me. And I'll ask her, what is happening? And she's like, you cheated on me in my dream last night, right? 
I'm like, listen, I was right here the whole time, I swear. And also, by the way, you dreamt it. What does that mean? Right? You've had that dream before where you wake up and you're like, what is real and what is not? This is like Peter. He's like walking out of the cell. Like, Angel, like, could we have done this tomorrow morning? Like, what's happening? And then finally he comes to me and he's like, whoa, like, this is, re- this is real. I'm standing outside the prison gates. I am free. He's sound asleep, and then he's walking free through the city, and he realizes, man, a miracle has just happened. He's in disbelief, but he wouldn't be the only one in disbelief. Verse 12. (laughs) When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door and the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door... She ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. You're out of their mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Can you imagine this sequence of events? I mean, there's Peter anxiously knocking at the door, afraid someone might meet him. When one of the girls in the house of Mary comes to the door and doesn't let him in, She just hears his voice. She's like, that's got to be Peter. And instead of letting him in, she runs back inside and leaves Peter out there. And even after telling the people in the house that Peter is at the door, none of them can still believe it. They even tell her she's out of her mind. You're out of your mind, lady. Which I have to be honest, all of this brings great comfort to me. The author and commentator N.T. Wright talks about this passage and he talks about that same comfort and he says, Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment, not as a bunch of great heroes and heroines, but as the same kind of modeled, half-believing, faith one minute and doubt the next sort of people as most Christians we all know. Like there's so much truth to what what Luke is writing in this. And you know, oftentimes for me, it confirms the, 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 the veracity of the scriptures. Because if you were going to write something to really convince people that this is what you should do, you wouldn't write stories like this, where everybody's just running around, they sort of half believe what's going on, they can't trust each other, right? This is, this is real stuff that's going on. And it's comedic, it's actually funny. I can imagine Luke writing this, just laughing as he's writing it. Like, can you even believe these idiots? What were they doing? right? And yet, as all of this is going on, Rhoda is talking to her friends, Peter's still outside. He's still outside. Verse 16, meanwhile, Peter keeps knocking. Hello? And when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them that the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers, what, and the other brothers, what happened, he said, and then they went to another place. Now, eventually, those who are in Mary's house are convinced Peter really did escape prison and they get the whole story, but it doesn't change Peter's current status at the time. He is a fugitive on the run, and he needs to get out of Dodge quickly because morning is coming. Verse 18, at dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. I love the 
scene in the great movie Shawshank Redemption, which I happened to come across just the other day. And the scene is when the warden of the prison goes to Andy Dufresne's cell and he realizes he's not there. He was there the night before. They shut the, the, the iron gates in front of him, but then that morning he comes and the look on his face as he realizes Andy Dufresne is not in his cell is kind of what I imagine Herod Agrippa looks like as he walks into the cell and realizes, I put 16 guards on this guy and he's not in here. I mean, you can only imagine what must be going through Herod's mind. After all, he did everything in his power to make sure this wouldn't happen. And he's so furious, it says that Herod decides to kill all of the guards who were there, and then he runs away to Caesarea. Now, I believe he runs away to Caesarea because he's embarrassed. And he is paralyzed with the fear of disapproval. Which, by the way, that fear of disapproval and that embarrassment would be the beginning of the end for Herod Agrippa, which come next week, we'll talk about that. Now, listen, I, I love, this is one of my favorite stories in all the book of Acts. It is wild what's happening here. Prison breaks were not and are not commonplace in society, especially prison breaks like Peter's. And yet at the foundation of this miraculous escape is one thing that remains at the core of what it means to be the church. Prayer. And it was a particular kind of prayer at that. So let's talk about prayer. Because it was at the core of who the church was in the first century, and guess what? It still remains at the core of what it means to be the church in the 21st century. Now, the, the New Testament calls us to pray in two particular ways. And the first we're told is that we're called to pray constantly, all of the time. There's this constant and persistent element to what it means to pray as followers of Jesus. Uh, most famously, it says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, never stop praying. In, in Romans chapter 12, it says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be, what's the word? Constant in prayer. Philippians 4.6, don't worry about anything. Instead, instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Now, the, the Apostle Paul is the author of these three passages in Scripture, and to just about every church that he writes, he instructs the people of God to be in constant prayer, which is pretty cool when you think about it. Because to be in constant prayer means that you are talking to a God who is constantly listening. When you're praying before bed or in the shower and you're driving to work or around the dinner table or between tasks at school or on the sports field or while sitting in your room in the quiet, you are in the presence of a listening God through Jesus Christ. The very God that holds every atom of the universe together is also listening and actively answering your prayer to be a good boss in your workplace. That's pretty cool. So we should take advantage of that. <laughs> Which is why Paul says, listen, you can't pray enough. Pray constantly. And it doesn't need to be formal, right? You don't need your dad to come in and by your bedside and pray with him. That would be weird, unless you're five. That's cool. 
But you can do this anywhere, right? If I'm driving to work, sometimes I'm just talking to God. Even when I'm having conversations, like right now, I'm talking to God. Don't screw up. Don't say something stupid, right? (laughs) Help me. We can do this. But there's also something else that the Bible calls us to in the area of prayer. The New Testament also calls us to a kind of prayer put on display by the church in Acts chapter 12. And the word that the translation we use is earnest prayer. One commentator refers to earnest or fervent prayer as a mood of powerful prayer. You might say this, to pray constantly is a measure of quantity, but to pray earnestly is a measure of quality. We're called to both, constant and earnest. God wants us to pray with passion and boldness and fervency and earnestness. He invites us to let him have it. Right? He loves to see his children filled with passion to see his kingdom come and his will be done. In, in his sermon, The Path of Prayer, the 20th century preacher Samuel Chaddock says this about praying earnestly. I love this quote. He says, There are blessings of the kingdom that are only yielded to the violence of the vehement soul. There are blessings of the kingdom that are only yielded to the earnest and fervent prayers of the church. The violent, passionate, vehement prayers of the church. Look what it says in Colossians 4, 2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Devote yourselves. Ephesians 6, 18, pray in the spirit at all times and all in every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And James 5, 16, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has power, has great power, and produces wonderful results. Let me ask you, when is the last time you prayed earnestly? That it didn't just come from the mind, but it came from the gut. That you knew without this moment before God, this mood of powerful, fervent prayer You didn't know if you could make it. You didn't know if anything could change. When was the last time you allowed yourself to let loose with prayer? When was the last time you did as Hebrews 4.16 says, and you came boldly before the throne of God? Now, if I may be so frank, I am concerned that many of us have given up on earnest prayer. Uh, Beginning of the year, we did a survey among the people of our church, and we may be sending that out because there's a lot more of you all of a sudden. Um, but one of the questions was about prayer, and uh, it, it became very evident to us that the vast majority of people pray. And so I think constant prayer, or at least regular prayer, is, is, a, is, a, is vital, and it is alive in our church. But I wonder, are, are we praying earnestly? Or Are our prayers docile and safe? Are they passionate and bold and earnest? Have we become too polite in our praying? You know, I don't believe that Jesus is after a bunch of safe, docile followers. I don't want to lead a church that's filled with them. Four people, you're with me, let's go. Come on. 
Jesus is after passionate, earnest followers. People who will sacrifice everything to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And if those are the people that we are, politeness gets thrown out the window. Our prayers ought to be earnest and passionate. We ought to wring our our fingers and hope that God will, by the power of his Holy Spirit, do amazing things in our midst that doesn't come by the docile, safe prayers of those who are just mailing it in with God. We want to pray earnest prayers because he calls us to. I mean, Jesus says some of the craziest stuff. He says, listen, I want you to pray like you could move that mountain right there. I want you to pray that God's kingdom in heaven would actually become reality in a broken world. I want you to pray for people's lives to be changed and delivered and for the church to become a force of redemption in the world. Those kinds of things don't happen by polite, safe prayers. All that said, there's something that needs to be true of us in order for this to be true as well. For us to have prayers that are earnest, there has to be something in us that is true in order for it to happen. In order for our prayers to become earnest and bold and fervent, we must consider what we want most in this life. Because if what we want most in this life is to be comfortable and have our preferences met and our bank accounts full and our friends to be nice and our house to have enough storage, then our, our prayers are going to be polite and safe and flat. These are the prayers of Herod Agrippa. But if what we want most in our life It's to see lives be resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, for people to be freed and delivered from shame and addiction, for justice to be served to the least of these in our community, for the church to be a force of change in the world, for the next generation to pursue Jesus like no generation before them, then our prayers need to be earnest. They need to be passionate. They need to be bold. You see, because of this, I want you to write this down. If you're taking notes, if you're in your group, write this down. Earnest prayer is rooted in kingdom passions. You cannot separate the two. You, you cannot have earnest prayer to build your little K kingdom. You can only have earnest prayer to build capital K, God's kingdom. And when the desires of our heart are for God's uppercase kingdom, then our prayers will be fervent and earnest. I love what Ahith Fernando says in his commentary. He says, fired afresh by an ambition to see all that God wishes for us, we will be emboldened to pray earnestly towards that end. When we are fired afresh by an ambition to see God's kingdom come in this world as it is in heaven, we will be emboldened to pray earnestly and fervently toward that end. Now listen, I will admit that my prayer life can become safe and docile. And so I need, I need this passage. I tell people often, I was telling somebody the other week, I'm like, listen, when I preach, I feel like I'm preaching to myself and then just a bunch of people are listening in. Like, I'm like yelling at myself, like, get it together, right? 
This is for me as much as it is for all of us. I need to be reminded that God is inviting me into participating with bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What an honor, what a privilege. But I know this, that when the desires of my heart become about my lowercase k kingdom, my prayers never, nor will they ever have the influence that they had in Acts chapter 12. Ain't going to set anybody free when it's about me. Wow, that was good. I got to write that down. That was good. Those of you on Twitter, you can quote that, all right? Ain't going to set free. Kristen, remember that, okay? Listen, when the desires of my heart are for God's kingdom, his uppercase, capital K, kingdom, man, things change, things move, miracles happen, people are set free. Prison breaks happen. And I don't just mean physical, I mean spiritual. So listen, I want to invite you to constant and earnest prayer today. Forget about being polite. You think God is up there like, don't say that. Uh-uh, I can't handle No, la, 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 la. No. No, come on. He is calling you to root your desires in God's kingdom, that it would come, that his will would be done, to observe what the Holy Spirit can do when we commit ourselves to those purposes and those passionate, earnest prayers. That's what he wants. He wants children with passion who are fervently living their lives. When bad things happen, like the church in Acts chapter 12, they get on their knees and they very, very earnestly pray, God, do something in the midst of this. Move a mountain here. Make something happen. Set the captives free. Break open the prison doors. I don't ever want us to become a polite church. When people see who we are, when they see your lives, that the word that they would use is, it might be a little crazy, but man, are they passionate. That we would be people who individually and corporately together would get down on our knees and we would pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that we would pray so hard that we would sweat blood, that the passion would ooze from us. I believe that that is at the core of how God wants to use the church in our world today. You know, strategy and, you know, good business practices, and that's all fine and good, but at the very core of what God wants to do right now, I think, is in the earnest prayers of his people. To say, will you passionately desire the same things I desire? Will you passionately pray and converse with me about the things that I want to do in this world? Will you passionately give your lives, your finances, your resources, your time, your efforts, your abilities? Will you give it all to see God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Will you pray like Acts chapter 12, the church did in Acts chapter 12? Will you pray earnestly for my kingdom to come. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how we forget. I think this morning is bringing you great joy to see your children together 
making a loud noise, listening to the truth of your word, reading of the stories of how you have worked since day one, the people of the church, prompting us by your spirit to be people who pray with passion and fervency and earnestness. I pray, God, that right in this moment, right now, that you would begin to change the desires of our hearts. God, that you would push aside anything that is keeping us from fully engaging the kingdom of God and its work in this world. God, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you would want from us, that we would pray in a different way moving forward that we would be constant in our prayer, but that we would be passionate and earnest in our prayer as well, that we wouldn't hold back, but instead we would come boldly before your throne. In fact, right now in this moment, friends, I want you to just take a minute and I want you to just pray. Whatever it is that the Spirit is laying on your heart, just pray. pray with passion. He is here. He is listening. God, we come to you boldly because of Jesus. Because when he breathed his last breath on that cross, the veil was torn. That freedom was gained, that we were forgiven, that we were entering into new life. And that now, as Hebrews 4 says, we can come boldly before you, that you are constantly present in our lives, constantly listening. And so I pray by your spirit in the coming days and weeks and months and years, that you will remind us each morning of how good and gracious and kind you are, that you are there, that your presence is always available, that we can come boldly before you and pray earnestly in the spirit that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, we all pray together. Amen. Hey, would you stand to your feet? We are going to sing.